are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X To Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed At following a franchise Until the better end This is Sequel Cast And your hosts have asked That I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergy. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners, and to all sentient beings out there, and to everyone else, the secret is to keep banging the rocks together, guys. That's right. Uh, we're starting off a, a new series. We're looking at Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And you might be wondering, well, Matt, they only did one movie of that, so how can you do it on SequelCast 2? <laughs> and uh, we're, we're doing something a bit different. We're going to spend two episodes talking about the BBC uh, miniseries Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which covers the first two books. So this episode, we're looking at episode one through four, which matches up more or less to the first book. And then uh, next week, we'll be doing uh, episodes five and six, which covers the second book, Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And then uh, the week after that, we'll look at the um, you know feature-length motion picture, high-budget um, film from 2005, starring Martin Freeman and, uh, and I think Zoe Deschanel or something and all that jazz. So, and we, we both are big fans of Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so I'm pretty excited to be covering that uh, on this show. Yeah, this this choice of topic made me very, very happy. So, I, I guess, you know, bef- before we leap into it, I'll, I'll do a, try to do a brief summary of, of the plot as it was with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's about a, um, a man in, in England named Arthur Dent. He has a friend of his named Ford Prefect, who reveals that he is not a human, but actually an alien from the vicinity of Beetlejuice. And uh, in, in short order, the Earth gets destroyed. They hitchhike a ride on a Vogon ship, and the Vogons were the aliens that destroyed the Earth. And they uh, end up being thrown out into space, picked up by the a stolen, uh, you know, a hyper-experimental spaceship, the Heart of Gold. A lot of stuff happens. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff happens. It's hard to sum this story up. This must it, sound isn't like it? nonsense if you oh, don't well, know sure. these Well, sure. And eventually or... they find out, you know, about the origins of Earth and so forth. And, um... Yeah, and... I, mean, that, I mean, that's about it. Like, it's, you're right. It's really hard. There's a lot that goes on in the story. But not just that. It also makes a lot of, you know asides of entries of the titular Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> so, uh, Thrasher, I don't think I've asked you this question, but when is the first time you, you heard of Douglas Adams, and then in, in particular Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, the first we should th- mention it originally was a radio series in BBC in uh, 1978, and then in 1979 it was a novel, and then later was a computer game, and this uh, TV, this uh, BBC series we're talking about is when in '81. Uh, yeah, I I first uh, became aware of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Douglas Adams. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, I was ten years old. Our local public radio station was replaying the radio series, uh, and so my my introduction to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were three episodes of the three episodes of the radio series I was able to catch. 
and I was fascinated by them and kept trying to, and these were like from the middle, by the way, I had no idea how this, this series began or ended. <laughs> um, and I remember trying to explain it to people who hadn't been listening. Uh, and, uh, I was pr- pretty much hooked from that point on, uh, the first time I saw this particular miniseries uh, was the uh, Sci-Fi Channel back when it showed a lot more science fiction uh, broadcast the whole thing in a marathon late one mm. night uh, for mm-hmm. for a number of we didn't have cable but for a number of reasons a bunch of st- a lot of stuff was happening with my family at the time so for a number of reasons uh, I was spending the weekend with my grandmother. And I was about to go to bed, and then I see this thing, up next, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like, oh, there's more of this thing from the radio <laughs> I liked? And I watched the whole damn thing in one sitting over six hours. It was great. Wow. Did your grandmother watch it with you? Or? Oh, no, she had already gone to bed. Oh, I see. Okay, well, that's fun. Um, yeah, the, the first time I even heard of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I would have been, uh, I would say around 10 years old, but uh, I had a friend that had every single video game system imaginable, no matter how obscure. And specifically, he had an uh, Atari ST, which was a, um, you know, sort of a, a little miniature computer that the Atari came out with. And on it was a port of the uh, Infocom text adventure, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm. which, uh, you know, came out in 84. So the first time I knew of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was from the video game, and it was very hard and didn't make a lot of sense because it, it, I think it assumes knowledge that you, you've read or, or experienced some form of the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy before playing the game because otherwise it really makes no sense. It's pretty obtuse. And uh, afterwards, I think, yeah, it was the Sci-Fi Channel uh, would, would show it frequently. Um, Comedy Central might have shown it as well, although I could be misremembering that. It might I, have I think you're misremembering that. Okay, so it's probably just Sci-Fi Channel, which makes more sense. But yeah, I remember, you know, they did it all in a marathon, and they had these advertisements to, to buy it for this ridiculous price on videotape or something. Um, and I didn't buy the videotape, but I saw it on, on TV. I got the, the DVD, all that stuff when it came out. And in fact, in my height of uh, being obsessed with the books when I was in middle school... Uh, for for Christmas one year, I got a set, uh, an audio cassette, unfortunately, of all five uh, books of the Hitchhikers trilogy read out loud by the author Douglas Adams. Cool. So yeah, that. So it's been a big part of uh, my life. You know, I haven't read um, the books in a while, but to prep for this show, I'm and on sale. I managed to pick up a set of all the Hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy radio series because after Douglas Adams uh, died, he. Um, it should be noted he he passed in uh, May eleventh, uh, two thousand one, at yeah. only age forty nine. Unfortunately, um, he they uh, you know decided to that ironically helped the movie to be kicked off. But also they on the BBC they finished uh, doing radio series based on the other books with mostly the same cast. And one particular character voiced by Douglas Adams, because as I recall, they extracted his his voice for that character from one of from a book on tape he had done and did some audio treatment to it. That's right. Yep. Yep. Which was a, a neat touch as well. But yeah, let's let's talk about this um, BBC series. One thing I, I thought was was quite interesting talking about the cast, and I think this is pretty unusual. For the most part, they used the cast that was on the radio series, which they didn't really need to... I mean, you don't think of 
people on a, on a radio series being on the live action version. I think that's a very interesting. Um, well, actually, I thing. I do, but that's because that happens a lot. That happens a lot with the BBC. Oh, does it? Like, I had no particu- idea. Okay. Particularly with comedy series, a lot of like a lot of a lot of comedy series that that we like from the BBC started as radio series. Uh, the, uh, the Michelin Web look started as the Michelin Web sound. Little Britain started as a radio play, huh. uh, and because they often use they often use BBC Radio Four as a testing ground for things. Mm-hmm. Mighty Boosh started the same way. So, so to me, it doesn't seem all, that? That, all okay. that strange. Uh, you know, one thing that is notable is uh, among the actors they did not bring over is it's a different Ford Prefect in the BBC series or in the TV series in the radio show. Although the guy, the guy they got, that, that's who I imagine whenever, whenever I read the book or hear the radio play. I mean, the, the man, the man looks like a leprechaun. He looks like something not of this earth trying to pass for human. Uh, what I thought was interesting, and um, oh gee, as a kid, I read the biography of Douglas Adams, written by Neil Gaiman of all people. Oh, don't panic. Um, that's a great book, isn't it? Yeah, um, I never read the updated version they did later on, but they. Uh, in it, they mentioned with um, that actor that played, um, what was it, David Dixon, I think, that played Ford Prefect on the show. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yep. They gave him these contacts to make him have these otherworldly blue eyes, but it doesn't really show up in the miniseries. Like, you can't really notice, but it put the actor in a lot of pain. Yeah, he doesn't get enough close-ups where you could see it no. in any any of the exterior shots. It's a good old-fashioned BBC exterior shot, so all the color gets muted and washed out. Sure, and uh, unfortunately the DVD looks like it's just a copy of the videotape. Like, it's very poor... Um video quality but it's, it's better than nothing certainly um it, it could it could use a remaster but in a way i still find that it makes it so charming because this this is the most british science fiction thing ever filmed it is violently british you mean you meaning with like the budget or the uh, the budget the look the sense of humor the dialogue uh just the the, the sort of cultural anchor that it has and I love the portrayal of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself. Uh, if you don't know, listeners, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is it's a an e-book. reference. Yeah, it's an ebook, and um, it is you know, it, it random parts in the story they go and talk about entries, and in the book uh, they they do the same thing. And in fact, they make reference to the Encyclopedia Galactica which is a reference to a piece of work quoted throughout Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Yeah, I do I do like that this wears its science fiction influences on its sleeve like that. But you know something you know with, with all the asides that this series uh, takes where you get bits and pieces from the guide which sometimes serve as exposition and sometimes set up things that happen later and sometimes it's just for fun. This really, this really is a sketch series. It's a sketch series mm. where, nevertheless, there's a narrative thread that connects all the sketches. Right, the way the way the jokes are, and the way the um, I mean, every hmm. scene can kind of stand on its own. Oh, right, and I'm especially thinking of the the guide entries in particular, and they Which look right gorgeous, the, the by scene. The way. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and the the scenes have a beginning middle and an end. Um, I guess we should mention a little bit about um, Douglas Adams as long as we're talking about all this. 
before doing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he um, was friends with the the Pythons of Monty Python fame. Yeah, he he had connections with the Cambridge Footlights. He went to Cambridge. He he wrote some material that appeared on Monty Python's Flying Circus, and I well, believe final he appears season, yeah. in three episodes. Right, and that's in that final season when John Cleese uh, had left the troupe. Although John Cleese was in the movies, uh, of course. Um, and then later he did some um, work on Doctor Who. Yeah, he became after Hitchhikers. He became uh, he became a script and story editor on Doctor Who, and he went on to technically write three episodes. Um, he did the Pirate Planet, which is a great episode. He did uh, the City of Death, which is. A very good episode and very much a Douglas Adams concept. Um, he wrote a treatment for an episode that was never made called Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, which he then turned into the basis for the third Hitchhiker's novel. And then he, I don't believe he gets credit on it, but he rewrote uh, the serial The Horns of Nymon, which is, regrettably, it's a very low point for the series, and yet it's full of all these delightful Douglas Adams absurdities. He also wrote uh, a series that um, was partially filmed, and then it was never aired, but later someone made it into a novel called Shada. Oh, yes, Shada! I completely forgot about that. There is a version of Shada now available on DVD. Uh, it was adapted as a radio play starring Paul McGann as the Doctor. Oh, which, okay. And that's a very good radio play. I hardly recommend tracking that down. I believe Big Finish uh, did that, and it sometimes shows up on the BBC Digital Player. Um I've read the novel adaptation as well. The author, I, I, I should have that book in front of me right now, but the author the author does a real good job of, of mimicking uh, the Douglas Adams' writing style and having the occasional expositional humorous aside. Uh, one thing about the, the Hitchhiker series I like, is uh, which they carry over from the radio show, is the theme song, which is the track One of These Nights from... Or, sorry, it's from the album One of These Nights by the Eagles, and the track is the... Uh, the Sorcerer? The Sorcerer, yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's the perfect theme because it, it ha- starts with that little rambling banjo twang, but then electronic instruments get mixed in. It's this perfect synthesis of down-to-earth <laughs> rambling music and, and science fiction. It sounds so good. Right, and um, I listened to the whole piece, and it's... A very fun, sort of laid-back, noodly instrumental, and it, it happens to work as a theme song. And it still has, and it still has that theme that that it keeps harkening back to and offering variations of. So we mentioned this uh, BBC series of six episodes. In this uh, episode, we're going to talk about just the first four because that covers the first book. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, overall rewatching this, I hadn't seen this uh, BBC series in a very long time. I would argue in some way this is too faithful of an adaptation. I think it drags a little bit in spots. Well, that was something that struck me. This this is a series that loves to take its time. And, and <laughs> yeah. generally, I like that. It has... It has this series has the feel of a lazy, a lazy British Sunday. <laughs> It it does, you know, and like, I, it, I think 
It doesn't even start big. It starts with a gentle sunrise and this voice. This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, it just, everything is so wonderfully understated at the beginning, despite all the horrible things that are about to happen. Right, and the thing that um, really struck me is there there is a joke that's pretty good where Douglas, uh, at the beginning, Arthur didn't wakes up and he sees, oh, his house is being uh, going to be bulldozed and... Uh, he goes and, and talks to the, the man that's trying to knock down his house. and Mr. Prosser, yes. Mr. Prosser, and he, he talks about, oh, the um, they, they didn't make the plans obvious. Uh, he had to go in the dark with a flashlight, and there was no stairs. And I thought, well, this is a TV show. You could show that, couldn't you? And nope. Instead, they just use it line for line what's in the radio series. I don't know, but I don't think they, sh- I don't think they need to show that. You because... don't think they need to show it? It just struck me as something like, well, they're... Because I, I finally, when I finally listened to uh, the first episode of the um, the radio series, I mean, this first episode of the uh, the BBC show, the miniseries, is almost like word for word the same thing. Oh yeah, a, a lot of the a lot of the script and the dialogue is preserved, which I don't think holds this back. I mean, I like I. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of of, uh, of Isaac Asimov and and I I love talky science fiction so I love that they don't try to make this visual adaptation any less talky than the source material. One thing I think they did do right is the uh, presentation of the guide entries itself. I mean, it <sighs> makes it you can tell this was made in the the early '80s and it has this wonderful hand drawn sort of animation with like neon greens and red. Oh, such very, bright colors. But, yeah, bright colors. Um, but but what's, so, what's so great about that, though, is that the animation for the guide entries is so precise, many people mistake it for computer animation, but everything was hand-drawn. Not just that, there's so many background jokes and tiny text on the screen. Oh, yeah, um, you can, if yeah. you read the tiny text, you get whole different jokes. Right, I mean, it's just such um, such an attention to detail. I also like the the conceit they do a few times, where um, the the guide voice, uh, which is Peter Jones, uh, is is speaking, and you hear and and they show footage from the series, but it has like a trippy sort of like yellow filter on top of it or green, <laughs> something to make it look more digital. Yeah, yeah, to look more digital, and it's a it's a real nice touch. And just all the little sound effects that, like, for, for the text and for the appearance of the Im- the rendering of the images. Uh, and just also the music that plays during each of the guide entries. I wish there was a soundtrack where I could just listen to the, those music tracks. That, that is surprising there was never a soundtrack to the series, huh? Well, it makes, it, it makes me wonder if any of uh, the... That music survived. I mean, the B- the BBC was notorious Probably for not. tape wiping <laughs> and for destroying a lot of the stuff that went into the production of the final series. There, so there might not be any tapes out there in the BBC archives of the guide music, which is a shame. Um, Douglas Adams himself has a has a cameo in this episode. He's one of the drinkers in the pub. Yeah, and he shows he shows up a lot in in this series. But I, I do love that he he gets in there right off the bat. But I think I think the thing something that I, I I love about this is that that this episode starts at a very mundane place and ends and ramps up very quickly to a very fantastical place because as you said it begins with Arthur Dent discovering that his house is going to be bulldozed 
um, to make way for uh, a highway bypass. Uh, and in the process, a very good friend of his Ford Prefect takes him to the pub to get drunk after some wonderful logical back and forth between himself and Mr. Prosser, uh, the the contractor. Uh, and, you know, we get Ford trying to convince Arthur that he is, in fact, an alien and that the world's going to be destroyed. <laughs> and there's some great there's some great end of the world, you know, humor. Here, keep the change. Keep the change for a fiver. Well, you've only got about three minutes and 15 seconds left to spend it. Oh, what was that? Well, the world's going to end. Oh, shall I put a paper bag over my head? If you like. Oh, would that help? Not at all. <laughs> and that's also a callback to, to earlier, um, where <laughs> Arthur Dent is laying in front of the bulldozer, and uh, Prosser goes to him and says, do you know how much uh, it would hurt if I ran, o- ran you no, over How, how much the damage the bulldozer yeah. would suffer if I ran you over? How much? None at all. None at all. Right. So it's a... Uh, it's a good gag. You know, I was surprised in the radio show, you have this sort of lengthy speech by um, Lady Cynthia Fitzmelton, where she talks about what a good thing the bypass is going to be right before they uh, bulldoze his house down. <laughs> and it's a really repetitive speech. I mean, it made sense why they cut it, uh, you know, from the novel as well as uh, this BBC series. Because you get a sort of satire, the same kind of joke, where the Vogon captain... Uh, gives a speech about oh Earth is being made build uh, made way for a bypass and so forth a hyperspace bypass yeah, yeah. which yeah because that's the thing is like these big big spaceships come down to announce that Earth is going to be demolished and we get a whole echo because Arthur's whole thing about how you know the city planners didn't make it clear his house was going to be knocked down and the Vogon captain makes the same speech about how the plans have been available for the past 50 years in the offices on Alpha Centauri it's like what do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri for heaven's sakes mankind it's only five light years away so how do you feel about the portrayal of um, the destruction of Earth, but also the, the Vogon uh, spaceships? I love the Vogon spaceships. There's, they're, they're, really, they're really nice models. I like that we get to see little hatches that open to, to unleash the demolition beams. Uh, the Vogons themselves are nice and green and, and slimy with those you know, ridiculous nasal prosthetics. Overall, I mean, overall, I, I like it. It's... it's, it's charming in that way that only BBC produced science fiction can be. I think the voices of the Vogons are processed a bit too much. They can be I, a little bit difficult to understand. I can agree with that. They could have they could have turned down the processing. And I in you know listening to the uh, BBC radio series um although there is processing on the Vogons that it's also the voices are pitched up a bit higher pitch which um for whatever reason makes them easier to understand. It's less of a a heavy mix with the the flange effects on the vocals, and uh, they're they're easier in the radio series. And uh, it, you know, I mean, the Vogons, they look like men in green plastic bags with the the mustaches. They're Which not, they kind of are. Yeah, and uh, they're not as ugly as I imagined from the books. But I love how lumpy the spaceship is, it, <laughs> because the book describes the spaceships as being very ugly, and they they match that part. And uh, the acting of the Vogon is, is fine, and it, it's very, um, you know, they're they're not likable. They're just dreadful to be around, and they, they get that across, not just from the portrayal of um, Martin Benson, who plays both the Vogon uh, captain and the Vogon guard, but as well the, uh, the Hitchhiker's Entry, which talks about the uh, Blug Batter Beast. The blood bla- Bug Bladder Beast of Trawl, yeah. Of Trawl, yeah. 
Well, that, I guess that's the thing I, I like about the Vogons, because, you know, science fiction, especially pulp science fiction, is loaded with warlike races and and logical races and telepathic species and things like that. I love that the Vogons' thing is that they're just bureaucratic. <laughs> and that just makes them generally unpleasant to be around. <laughs> they're, they're officious. That's their species hook. It is sort of surprising where this first episode uh, ends. I, you know, I almost think if you would have ended it when they got thrown into space, that could have been more exciting. It certainly would have made a better a better cliffhanger, um, but that also might have thrown off the pacing a bit. I think so, yeah. Um, the, so, so, so something I do like we get, though, before the ending when they're captured by the Vogon security guy, I love the bit with, with the Babel fish, because a lot of science fiction... Uh, just ignores that humans and aliens can communicate with great ease. Um, and I love I love that this show makes a... Or the Hitchhiker's Guide in general just makes a really big deal of explaining how universal communication is possible, but then puts icing on that cake by laying on you the premise that universal communication is the worst thing to happen between species. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it's really, it's it's really a shame Douglas Adams died when he did. I wonder what he would think of the uh, of smartphones. Cause, I, I'm sure he, I'm sure he would have had some amusing uh, amusing thoughts about them. Sure, but the whole I mean, the whole idea with the Babel yeah. fish, a fish you put it in you put in your ear, and due to a sim, due to a byproduct of its parasitic uh, or I guess symbiotic relationship with you, you could just understand any language. <laughs> And that's also a wonderfully animated series. I love the anatomical detail on the Babelfish cross section. Yep, it's a it's a good touch. Um, so episode two starts off with their um, you know going to be read the Vogon poetry and so forth. And it turns out it's a, it's a torture session because Vogon poetry is the third worst poetry in existence. And I think this uh, has a sequence in the book that might be my favorite in the whole series, where the guide talks about other terrible forms of poetry, including the one where it's like an ode to a lump of putty I found in my armpit one morning. And it, it does the animated sequence of the, the brain popping out of the guy's head. Oh, yes, and then there's that um, there's that bit... Uh... And then there's that, that bit about how the worst poetry is from uh, Nelsie Bryan Millstone Jennings, which, uh, as it turns out, that wasn't the original reference. In the original radio play, Douglas Adams named a specific poet who he was friends with, uh, uh, Paul Neil Milne Johnstone, who turns out didn't like his name being used in this way, which is why it's changed to Leslie Bryan, Millstone Jennings, and all uh, other adaptations. Hmm. And the graphic we get for Millstone Jennings is Douglas Adams in a wig. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. But yeah, it's... I, I I love the idea of the Vogon uh, poetry torture scene. However, this is one scene where the overprocessing of the Vogon voices does hurt the comedy because the Vogon poem is just full of all sorts of great sounding made up words uh, that just violently pummel the rhyme structure. 
And a, a lot of that is lost because you can't make out many of the nonsense words with all the garbling. That being said, I love that Arthur tries to sort of get out of this whole poetry thing by offering this wonderfully bullshit critical analysis. And I learned a lot from this scene. Uh, in, in high school and to a certain extent in college, uh, I was the I was the person who could easily uh, ace uh, essays because I mm. knew the right big words to use at the right time to impress whoever was going to be grading them. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's uh, his bullshit flattery in the scene between the two of them is a, is always a fun sequence. So they talk about the humanity, no, no, Vogonity. Oh, I mean the Vogonity. Well, just has the great that that perfect line uh, counterpoint the surreal the surrealism of the yeah. underlying metaphor. Like I love that. That is such a perfect empty phrase that sounds profound. Now you mentioned how this show is extremely British. I think nowhere does the uh, you know somewhat paltry BBC budget come into effect when they're picked up by the uh, Heart of Gold and they're they are in this sort of trippy sequence with the improbability drive. Oh yeah, because they because the Vogon captain uh, does throw them out of the airlock, and there's that great transition where they explain where the guide explains the mathematical probability of being rescued before you die of asphyxiation, and how that same probability is also the phone number of a woman that Arthur was hitting on, but uh, but failed. But yeah, then they get picked up by they get picked up by uh, they get picked up by a mystery ship, and I do love. I do love the valiant attempt at visualizing all the surreal imagery that's supposed to happen when they're on the Heart of Gold, such as like how the sea is perfectly still, but the buildings keep washing up and down against the shore. It's a goofy-looking effect, but I like that they still tried. Where you mm. get those two layers of buildings stretching and squatching and moving in and out of the foreground. That the effect that just strikes me is you have um ford prefect turning into a penguin and it just looks like he's in blackface and it's i mean this stuff with like um arthur dent's limbs vanishing that's done okay like you get the point but the the transformation to a penguin they could have just cut to stock footage of a penguin i don't know i think that's less successful but you can tell weird stuff is going on which i guess is the point of the scene yeah, and this and this is another thing. So you know, in the first episode, they explained how all how humans and aliens can communicate flawlessly with the Babelfish. So in in this, we get a wonderful guide entry explaining the way faster than light travel is going to work for the rest of this series, uh, which which is the the whole the whole infinite improbability drive. And I love how much time is taken explaining this ridiculous method of faster than light propulsion. And how it still has a beautiful, internally consistent logic. I mean, I mean you, you, meant, yeah. you need yeah, a yeah. ship that, that, that can move in an impossibly fast way, so you need to invent a machine that can't possibly exist. And you, and you make, and to invent that machine, you make it appear out of thin air by telling a computer how impossible it should be. It's a good sequence. Um, and then we do get introduced to other main characters in the series here. We get Marvin, the android, which I, I love his retro, you know, like 1950s science fiction design. Well, he looks like a wind-up toy. It's a really cool design. I really like it. Um, you get Zaphod Beeblebrox, who has two heads. Um, Three arms and... 
And did you know two penises? I did not know two penises. Yeah, I didn't realize. So I, I, I learned about this while watching one of the special features on the DVD where they interview a lot of the cast members. And the guy who played Zaphod, he, while getting fitted for his costume, he just said, Hey, I've got this crazy idea. Since Zaphod's got these extra body parts, what if he had two penises and therefore two bulges in his pants? And oh. so they bought a sex toy and rigged it into the inner lining of his pants. Like, it's so subtle you wouldn't notice it, but now that you know it's there, it's all you can see. He has two bulges in his pants. It's hilarious. Yeah, Mark Wing Davey, who plays Zaphod, is the same person that played him in the series. Um, The head, they had to do as a robotic head, and it's they had really trouble getting it to move on the set, and it was quite expensive. Well, that's it. Another thing they talked about, including showing the head as it was in the late 2000s when this DVD set came out, it was pretty desiccated. But yeah, they made a great animatronic head that would always break down one minute into filming, so it never worked right. And the head yeah. only gets, I think, three lines throughout the entire series. They had intended it to have more, but the they had so many problems with the animatronic, they just gave all the lines to the main head. That being said, I like the representation of the head. It was like more of how I imagined it in the book than compared to how they do it in the movie, which we'll talk about in Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. I got words for that. Yeah. Um, the Of course, Marvin's voice, uh, Stephen Moore, it, it's very dry. You can understand what he's saying all the time. It's it's great. A Trillion is played by a different actress than the BBC series. It's uh, Sandra Dickinson, who... Um, I'm not sure what I think about uh, that they gave her like an American accent. That's kind of strange it's it is unexpected and and yet like i feel like it works for the character but although although at the same time i almost wish there was an there was an explanation because like she, her whole background is that she's a she's an advanced physicist who apparently lives in in who apparently lives in islington but also was unemployed. <laughs> they don't get into it. Like that's all. That's her background. I kind of wish there was uh, there was a little bit more context for that. But I don't. I don't mind that she has the American accent. Well, it it's turns out the actress is American than most BBC too. American accents. Right. Well, the actress is American, as it turns out. Um, well, there you go. But but she's an expat and has lived in most of her career has been in England. Um. So, it, it might be why they decided to do it. it it's also um. What I thought was amusing is in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy in the later books they have like an alternate version of earth and they get the same actress in the radio series to play the alternate version of um trisha mcmillan which is a nice uh nice little bit of continuity there um and you talk about the this bbc series having a bit of a lazy sunday feel i think nowhere is it more present than this second episode because very little happens in the episode but you get some of the best guide entries uh in the series and a lot of um douglas adams you know complicated yet well thought out explanations for how things work and i do i i gotta say i love i love the serious cybernetics core entry but i love i love marvin the paranoid android uh something something douglas adams had a real gift for was sort of anticipating ways that ways that technology would not necessarily go wrong, but be very frustrating and annoying. And I love the idea that once you start giving machines personalities, inevitably you will start giving them 
personalities that make them hard to deal with. And in Marvin's case, it's his, it's his, his depression. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and it, it gets contrasted with the personality of the onboard computer to the heart of gold that's named Eddie, I think, that's really... Like, hi guys, how you doing? Like, well, that, I can tell your weight if you'd like to the nearest decimal point. Well, that goes all across the ship because even the doors have artificial intelligence. You know, it is their pleasure to open for you and their smug satisfaction to close behind you with knowledge of a job wilt. <laughs> and and yet, I I find myself thinking about this, uh, the 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 you know, the, the genuine people personalities circuits whenever, whenever I go to the, to the supermarket, because I tend to use the self checkout because often it is faster, but I hate it when machines talk to me. You know, I, I hate it when a machine tells me I'm a valued customer. No, I'm not. You are a machine <laughs> incapable of assessing value. The, uh, the like, funniest example, oh, go on. Don't, don't thank me. Just make beeps and boops and let me make my purchase. I don't, like, I, I, I hate boxes that act like they, they're supposed to be your friends. The funniest example I ever ran into of a computer that speaks to me was in, in college at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it was a newly installed Bank of America uh, ATM, and the voice was British. And I was like, well, huh. it's, it's called Bank of America. I have nothing against British voices, of course, but it's like, why is the voice British? It's, it should have been from Brooklyn. Yo, welcome to Bank oh. of America. Oh, yeah, it, I'm gonna some, make a or, deposit. Or it could have been Southern because it was in the you know, welcome to Bank of America. Hi, How yo. can I help you? I don't know, but it, it was just that it was British struck me as quite, quite strange. Um, episode three of the BBC series, we get a lot of um, set up uh, to explain Magrathea. Well, as as uh, as Wallace Greenslade would say on the Goon Show, this is where the story really starts. But yeah, yeah we, this we... Uh, the, this is based on the first um, Hitchhiker's Radio series in the first book, and it's a book very light on plot. You know, it's a lot of explanations of side bits and bobs with the well, the guide entries and it's the introducing characters. But yeah, it's sketches. The plot is not the main thing on its mind. But yeah, and and so like we we got early on in Zaphod's introduction that he was the president of the galaxy. They don't they don't get into this as much as the book, but he was the president of the galaxy specifically so that he could steal the the, the heart of gold starship, so he could use it for a heist. Yep. But yeah, there's this legendary planet that used to build planets during the days of the old Galactic Empire, but when the Empire the Empire's economy collapsed, they hid the they hid the planet so that they could come back later when the economy was built up and people could afford their services again. But since the custom-built planet industry is in fact what bankrupted the uh, Empire by hoarding so much wealth, Zaphod's like, well, I want to find... I need an impossible ship to find an impossible planet to steal an impossible amount of wealth. It's not something that's set up especially well, and, and frankly, the details aren't terribly important it's more of a means to an end but um it would have been nice if they would have gone into more details with that but we i I love those i love those bits with like the flashbacks to the old galactic empire the men were real men the women were real women furry-footed creatures from alpha centauri were real furry-footed creatures from alpha centauri like it's it's a salute to like the pulpiest of pulp science fiction 
And uh, the look of the uh, the whale as it falls down to Magrathia. Now, this is, must not make nice... any sense to people, but yeah. No. So they it... do find Magrathia, and the automated defense system starts firing nuclear missiles, missiles at them. And so Arthur, and... in a flash of brilliance, just activates the improbability drive, which turns the missiles into a, into a whale and a pot of petunias. And I love the whole bit with the whale puppet falling through the atmosphere. <laughs> Especially the puppet's eye is very lifelike. And... Like, the the flippers are real chintzy, but yeah, the eye is really lifelike and expressive. And I just, you know, love the whale sorting out its place in the universe before falling into the planet and dying horribly. And we also get one of the best moments of absurdity when, uh, after this whole scene involving the whale's internal monologue, the guide goes on to explain that the only thing that passed through the mind of the bowl of petunias was the phrase, oh no, not again. We don't know what this means, and if we did, we'd probably know a lot more about the nature of the universe. And I love that that absurdity is just stands on its own. And I even like that in the third book in the series, they do give context to that phrase in a way that doesn't feel like a cheat. Hmm. We don't really need to go into that. Maybe we'll do that as a roundup later. But I, I, I just, I love that. I love that nonsense. A bowl of petunias thinking, "Oh no, not again!" Right before it crashes. <laughs> and then we get to a BBC classic rock quarry exterior shoot. Yes, for the planet. It's, this is the um... most Doctor Who-y that this gets. Just walking around the rock quarry with synth music playing in the background. Which is ironic because they basically film it on a very similar location for the movie. Um, yeah, it the planet isn't much to look at, but I think that's sort of the point. You know, the real meat of the planet is beneath the surface with the, all the systems down there. Well, they do even talk about that. It's like, oh, it's such a desolate, awful place. Oh well, all, well, the Magrathians—they all lived underground. Oh, why not? Did the did the surface become too polluted or desolate? Oh no, they just didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, like I love that they're uh, always undercutting like there's certain science fiction premises that get blown out of proportion in this series and all the others get undercut like that and so I mean essentially we, we get the quarry a bit but most of this planet is just a series of corridors another another classic BBC science fiction bit that's right and uh, in this episode we learn about that this planet as he said was known for um Known for building other planets. Other planets. And we also and finally meet Slarty Bartfast, one of the planetary engineers, who has yep. a great name. He does. It's supposed to, it was meant to sound slightly vulgar. And um, well, the I, way he I've, looks... I've heard that the original version, and that this might have even been an old, old uh, Don't Panic, in the original script for the radio series, Douglas Adams tried to make his name Farty Fuckface, and the BBC shot that down. I don't know if that's true. That could be a problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that could be. Um, but, but Slarty Bartfast is great. It is. And I love the way he looks in this series. He, he looks kind of like a wizard. He has the lawn hair and the robes and the, the lawn beard. Well, I mean, he looks like a planetary engineer from a collapsed galactic empire. Yep. He's been, um... No, he apologizes for the missiles launching, but it was a defense mechanism. Oh, yeah, it was like the, the, the artificial intelligence that runs the missiles. They just shoot things, shoot things to relieve their boredom. Uh, <laughs> I also like the, that great that great aside where they, he, he takes Arthur to his office. Oh, after showing Arthur that in, in the pocket dimension they keep inside the planet for building other planets, they're building a second Earth. 
and which is a which is another special effect shot. Like it's such a big epic thing that they don't quite pull off, but I admire all the effort they put into it. Where you see Earth in that weird light rig, um, but when he goes into Slurry Barfat's office, which is a complete mess, you know, Slurry Barfat apologizes and says that a diode blew in the life support systems, and their their janitorial staff has been dead for the past five five thousand years. Uh, and what he's most concerned about is, well, who's going to clean up their bodies? <laughs> Since I don't have a janitorial staff anymore. So you get the revelation that Earth itself is actually a computer. That's most of episode four, yeah. Right. Which, which is, again, another one of those great things where, where yeah, the, the premise is that Slutty Bartfast uh, starts playing these history tapes for Arthur about how these extra-dimensional beings built a computer, a super-advanced computer, a, a computer voiced by Valentine Dial, who was the perfect choice. Valentine Dial, uh, people may know Valentine Dial appeared uh, many, many times on The Goon Show, uh, which was, you know, the first great British post-war comedy. He has this perfect voice for that sort of thing. Uh, But he was also the original actor to portray the Black Guardian on Doctor Who. So he's got his his comedy and sci-fi bona fides right there. Sure. But yeah, they built a computer to figure out the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, which leads to one of the most quoted, and I gotta say it, misunderstood lines in Hitchhikers, where the answer to the ultimate question of the meaning of the life, the universe, and everything is 42, which none of the people accept because it sounds so preposterous. So then that computer, Deep Thought, designs the greatest computer ever made, a computer so large and complex that organic life itself will make up part of its operational matrix to figure out the question. Because once they have the question to the ultimate answer of life, the universe, and everything, then they'll have context to understand the answer. And that computer is the Earth. Which I I, I kind of like that. I, I it. It's it's great that it turns out Earth and all life on it does have a purpose, a very specific purpose. I will dare say maybe even a philosophical and spiritual purpose, but it never got to be fulfilled because the Earth got blown up five minutes before it transmitted the ultimate question. But can we talk about the whole 42 thing for a moment? Uh, Yeah, go for it. So on, on the one hand, it works as a perfect bit of absurdity, but on the other hand, it makes an argument against the anthropic principle. Uh. Because why, why should we assume that if if the universe and life and and everything does have meaning, why should we assume that it's a human meaning that we should be comfortable with? Hmm. Well, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, I mean, I mean, do do you have do you have any? Any thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this the forty whole forty two thing has been chewed over quite a bit. But I was wondering if you had any any particular thoughts. I like that. There's something about forty two, and maybe because it's an even number, that as an answer, it sounds so um, so comforting. Hmm. And I, I like how abstract it is that it's just a number. It's not something like "Don't worry, be happy" or some platitude <laughs> or, or or some you know big long screed of what what life should be. Well, I mean, it is in all honesty, it probably is the last thing anyone would have expected. 
Right. Because I'm sure lots of people would, like, if this were serious, I'm sure lots of people would expect a platitude. I'm sure a lot of other people would be expecting a joke. But it's not. It's just this flat number. And I think because it's a flat number, that's why people still talk about and argue about what it really means. Um, I recall in one of the the versions of the paperback, uh, the cover was a 42 spheres at tilted at a 42 degree angle. Oh, I've seen that cover. Yes, which is I don't know. I, I like the the American cover with the green smiley face, but that's just what I'm used to. Douglas Adams hated that cover. And yet, that's a very iconic image. Um, It is, yeah. But but speaking of iconic things, 42 is also the thing that kind of gets quoted or dropped all the time by people who have never read the books or played the game or seen the movie or the miniseries. This has been in so many mediums, (laughs) and yet it still has a huge life outside of those mediums. Yeah, I think even Ted Cruz referenced Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and 42 in some recent uh, confirmation hearing. Really? Huh. Yeah, it was very strange. And then people started saying, like, this is the exact thing Douglas Adams would have hated. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true, too. But, um, but yeah, so after, after this, uh, we, get, we get one of my favorite sketches, uh, which is, you know, as Arthur, as Slarty Bartfast takes Arthur to meet with some quote-unquote special guests or clients, um, we, you know, he, we get the whole difficulty with my lifestyle bit, which is the most space opery thing so far, where we see these two crazy aliens, you know, threatening each other at a table, trying to have peace talks, and then Arthur's words oh, yes. across the yeah. table, which sounds like an insult. And so we get an epic space battle represented as this, like, weird, weird animated video game. Yeah, I love it. It looks a bit like asteroids where it's these triangles shooting at each other. And it's so full of great gags. There's a consistent score that's kept. They move in a very realistic for the time video game way. Um, there's also stuff in the background. Uh, and, and of course, we get an, another one of the classic Douglas Adams absurdities where, the, where they realize that this million year war they've had was caused by an insult that originated from a human being from Earth. So they travel across the galaxies to get to Earth and then are swallowed by a small dog. Which, as I, I recall, mean, yeah. was a major part of the video game. I think so. I mean, also a big part of the video game is being on the Vogon spaceship. There's a lot of puzzles there. And um, the, the video game sold quite well. It was one of their best sellers for Infocom, but um, they never did a, a second one. I think maybe because... Douglas Adams might have been too busy. I, um, I could he, see that, certainly. And he later did another game for them, uh, not Hitchhikers-related, called Bureaucracy, um, which is pretty funny. Uh, but, I mean, I, I think of, you know, all the different sketches, all the different guide entries. I love the one early on about Earth, and it talks about how humans think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. Which is a running un- gag throughout the series. Oh, my digital watch has stopped. Right, and uh, but they mentioned that... <laughs> You know, people were unhappy most of the time, and they exchanged green pieces of paper to uh, alleviate that, which is strange, because it's not the green pieces of paper that were unhappy. We get the Douglas Adams butt shot. Oh, of him going into the beach, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, you know, another sign of the BBC cheapness, and I, this effect just, I cannot believe how poorly they did this. They talked to uh, the mice which uh, the mice are revealed to be quite smart, along with the dolphins. Well, they are the the pan-dimensional beings who, who 
built Deep Thought and then had Magrathia build the Earth. Um, but yeah, they figure they they figure they can get they might be able to get the ultimate question out of uh, out of uh, Arthur's brain, Arthur's brain without yeah. having to build a, go through the trouble of building a whole new Earth. But I really I really love the thing. Well, of course we can read it from your brain, but your brain has to be prepared first, dissect, uh, removed, diced. Yes, I love I love that whole run. Oh, don't worry, we'll be rich. We'll just get you another. We'll just get you a new brain, an electronic one. Well, I'd know the difference. No, you wouldn't. You'd be programmed not to. If they mentioned like the programmed version of his brain would say like, like what? When's tea time? And, what's you know, going on? Like, yeah, what's going on? I don't on? understand. <laughs> and when's tea? Yeah, it's like the most like, insulting, See? but not. Yeah, it's not entirely an accurate description of Arthur Dent, who he's you know sort of the the audience uh, surrogate, where you don't know what's going on. Flustered fellow. Yeah, neither does Arthur. Um, Who I love, like in the morning, he left his house in his bathrobe, and he's still in his bathrobe. Yeah, that is sort of the iconic look and the touch. And and the the stuff with the towels—they don't really get into the series as much as the book seems to stress that a bit more. And that's another uh, continuity. It's a rough universe. You got to know where your towel is. That's right. so the um, well, the thing with the mice, which are these beings, as you mentioned, when they talk, it just shows slow motion footage of the mice. The mouths aren't even moving in a really high pitched, like annoying, processed voice. Well, I think in part it's because they chose to put the mice in this weird, like mushroom shaped enclosure with holes poking out. So right. They can really, like it really only looks good to have the mi- mice speaking when their heads are poking out of the holes. But I'm sure it must have been really hard to get footage of them sticking their heads out of those holes for any length of time. They probably just should have put them in like a fancy looking dome thing so you could constantly see them and then you wouldn't have to worry about those shots. Right, because I can see, you know, you wouldn't want the mice in a cage. That'd be a bit too plain for a science fiction series. But on the other hand, yeah, the the small little openings, it it does it no favors. But we get... um, you know, as all this is going on, the galactic police arrive, shooting their guns at things. Oh yeah, God, I love, I love the galactic police with their American accents and you know the mustache. They're, they're, yeah, they love in committing acts of 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 brutality, but still condemn those same acts of brutality. You know, we don't, we don't want to have to shoot you, but we will. And, but we, and we might kill you, but we'll feel bad about it. It's not easy being a cop. Yes, it's, um... No, either you surrender and let us rough you up a bit. <laughs> but not too much. Yeah, it's... Because we're sensitive, mature guys. <laughs> it's nice. It's right from the book. It gives it a... And I think, you know, as much of the complaining as I've done with the special effects, I think the lasers and the exploding stuff... They, it really does sell the sequence that they're in danger, and uh, it, it's pretty well done. Well, you even I mean, get, it, like, you've had all this high-concept comedy. It's in this scene that you get a lot of great, like, wordplay. Like, when, when you know, Zaphod comes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, to talk to you. Uh, or, like, we'd like, we'd like to, we'd like to, you know, see if we can come to a, an agreement. And, you know, and Zaphod comes out and goes, okay, uh, shoot. I mean, fire away. I mean, oh, no! And they just <laughs> they start unloading on him. And it ends on a cliffhanger as the... Uh... No, it doesn't even end on a cliffhanger. I oh, mean, I guess not. There's they, an like, explosion. They are... Like, they... they, they know, Trillian notices at the last minute that they're standing next to an overheating computer bank, and it just explodes. So they... If you didn't know there were more episodes, you could safely assume that they are just all dead. Which, I, strangely I wonder... foreshadows the fifth book in the series. 
Yeah, I do wonder if there's people that didn't realize there was an episode after this last one. Because they, they could have just done... I, I wonder why, uh, when they did the series, they decided to... Um, you know, make the, the second book only two episodes. Uh, I, I will we'll talk about that next week. Next I've actually week. given okay. it a lot of thought. Very good. Um, so, yeah, overall, this um, BBC series, it's it's entertaining. It takes a bit of time to to get going, you know, but uh, it's, it's faithful. Uh, um, well, can I might say too much? strange thing? Yes. The, um, so when when Arthur's with Slarty Bartfast, there's this weird like mechanical piston jiggery noise that we keep hearing crop up throughout the scene, and it's it's very distracting. And when Arthur and Slarty Bartfast leave Slarty Bartfast's workshop, there's this neat aerial shot where like we can see this sunken pit that's been in there, and there's like a ramp under the sunken pit. And as they're leaving, that piston sound starts up again, and a robot we've never seen before and we will never see since just shuffles along that ramp, presumably is the source of that sound. That shot has always baffled me. Hmm. Like, I don't understand why that's there, except to make an already pretty science fictional scene seem extra science fiction-y. And, and the robot, it is just this sort of silver boxy shape to the point where I wonder if that was the rehearsal costume for Marvin. Because it has roughly the same proportions. But it's clearly not Marvin. It's too shiny and too boxy. You know, it could have been, I think, um, or it might have been, you know, as I mentioned, Doctor Who was quite big at the time. It could have just been an extra robot from Doctor Who. They just no, no, it wasn't. Have... No? Okay. It's not a Doctor Who robot. I guess you would know. You've seen all the... Very I've, I've seen quite a bit, stuff. yeah. Yes. Um, good point. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would recommend this a BBC series. Next week we'll talk about episodes five and six. I'd recommend it, it as um, well. I'd give it a sequel, yes. Yeah, a sequel, yes. And I think, you know, especially the, the way they do the Hitchhiker's um, segments, I think are arguably better than what they did on the movie, which um, we'll get into in a few weeks. It's just uh, just really inspired. Um yeah, I wish so, I, I kind of wish one of the special features on the DVD was just watching all the guide entries. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the, you get some interesting special features. You get a nice sort of memorandum on Douglas Adams' life. You get a, a brief sequence of them filming the uh, um, the radio series. You know, we might have to do a special mini-episode that's just a special features breakdown. <laughs> or Douglas oh, Adams' maybe. ephemera. There's a lot to talk about either way. There is, maybe sometime down the line. I don't know. Um, so, pitch a sequel. Gee, I guess we should do it. It's weird, isn't it? Because I, there's like, this is part of a five-book series. I, I, pre- I prepared that, because, you know, the cheap thing to do is to just say, well, let's adapt another one of the books. But I've thought of something. that ex- I've thought of a way you could do a sequel without having to adapt the other books. Okay, well, go ahead. So my pitch is sequel. Um, part of the conceit of, the, of, the, of this is that in order to tell the story of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you really need to tell the story of the lives of people it's affected. And we know Ford Prefect was a researcher for the guide, and that's why he was on Earth. He was working on the Earth entry. So my premise is that obviously the editors of the guide knew that Ford was on Earth and probably were aware of the demolition, uh, the impending demolition. So my sequel would be about uh, another, another uh, would be about uh, Ford's editor, uh, a guy named uh, Boris Farkleblatz. And Boris Farkleblatz 
realized that oh well heck one of our best one of our best or at least least disposable riders uh, is on Earth and it's going to be demolished. I better get him. So it's all about uh, about Baz Farkleblatt's uh, making his way from the Ursa Minor Publishing House offices to Earth to pick up Ford Prefect. But uh, being that uh, being somebody from the publishing industry, he likes lunch and drinks. Uh, it's all about him getting drunk, going off course, having his time wasted by different bureaucratic alien cultures. So that in the end, in the end of this four-part miniseries, when he finally gets to Earth, he arrives just as the Earth blows up. He arrives like a minute too late and figures, oh, well, I guess Ford is dead. I'll have to... You know, well, at least that means we don't have to pay him. And so that's like that's his end. He gets there. He gets there too late. His friend is dead, but it'll make the accountants happy. Oh. But he'll also have to explain to the head publishers why they don't have an Earth entry in by what well, in by for the deadline. Oh, but that'll be that'll be the other twist, though, is that we will think that he's going to meet Ford uh, like now. We won't reveal that it takes place before the rest of the series. So the, the fact that he gets to Earth before it blows up is going to be the big surprise. Making the entire series seem like a waste of time. <laughs> That's pretty neat. Um, if I were doing a, a pitching a sequel to this, I, I think I would just call it Guide to the Galaxy, and it would be um, sort of a, a sketch series, and it would just be uh-huh. separate entries. Just entries. Just entries, but, you know, the entries would sort of... Um, I, I think the format is you would start and end the episode with an entry, and then have kind of like a short story, uh, a short episode, standalone episode based on something from that entry. Huh. Because... The galaxy is such a big place. They they make reference to all these different planets and aliens. They don't really feature that you would sort of explore these nooks and crannies of the the galaxy. With the guide entries as sort of the um the the wraparound device for the stories. Hmm. So it'd be an anthology show. I could see that. And that's my. Uh, let me pitch a sequel. Um, let's get into what you're watching. Um, I, speaking of Douglas Adams, I was watching a Douglas Adams-related thing cool. that uh, really turned me off. Um, and oh, it, no. Is it something I recommended to you? I don't think so. Have, have you seen the new uh, BBC series, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency? No, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to talk about Hyperland. No, I have not seen Dirk Gently. Oh, no. Yeah, um, so I only saw the first episode because it popped up on uh, Hulu uh, in the United States recently, because uh, I don't get BBC America, and um, man, like, so Dirk Gently, uh, for listeners that might not know, uh, there is two books that Douglas Adams wrote, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and The Lawn Dark, Tea Time of the Soul. Um, back in 2012, they did a Dirk Gently's um, TV series for the BBC, that was one season that um, I don't think was based on the book, but it was closer in tone to the book. And uh, this new one um, has nothing to do with the books at all, except for the titular character, Dirt Gently. It has Elijah Wood as a a, a Todd Bratzman, a a made-up human character. And um, the thing that really threw me off is 
it's so random, it doesn't make a lot of sense, which, the, the, granted, the book sort of had that. But uh, you have, like, extreme violence with blood everywhere, which that part just really doesn't feel like Douglas Adams to me. But, um, and it, it got renewed for a second season. Uh, one, one conceit I did like is they have a character, Dirk Gently is a holistic detective, which means he just sort of, um, he finds links between things. He thinks everything is connected. And so, you know, the solutions eventually sort of present themselves. Uh, there's a character that's a holistic assassin who just kills things at random, <laughs> which I think is an inspired idea. I think that I enjoyed that part of it. Um, presumably those characters mean... I haven't watched the whole thing, so keep that in mind. But just the... I, I'm not one bothered by violence in media usually, but I think because... I don't know. I don't think... When I think Douglas Adams, violence is the last thing that comes to mind. The extremely, like, gory kills and all this stuff in the Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency just really uh, annoyed me. And... Well, does it does it feel like somebody had a premise for a weird detective show and they just attached Dirk Gently to it to sell it? I think so, yeah. Max Landis is the writer on it. Um, now, the, the actor they have playing Dirk Gently is uh, Samuel Barnett, and he's quite good. Like He has the yellow jacket from the book, and he's eccentric, and he reminds me of the character from the book. And uh, it, it does sort of surprise me, though, that this is the second BBC series done... Um, you know, spun off the books, and that they haven't directly adapted the books as a miniseries, and that's sort of surprising. They they have done a radio series of both the books, but um, not not a TV show that was a faithful adaptation, from what I understand. So maybe it gets better. I part of the reason why I watched it is there's a character that's a corgi, and I have a corgi, but the corgi <laughs> isn't in the first episode very much, and um. Yeah, it's just pretty, uh, pretty intense, I think, with what goes on. But the the actress that plays the holistic assassin is Fiona Dorif, who's the daughter of Brad Dorif. Hmm. Uh, who listeners might know as uh, the voice of Chucky, and he's Wormton in the Lord of the Rings movies. I guess I, I guess I got to ask. Is, is it worth seeking out just for the novelty factor, or is this something I can give a pass to? Um, I would say give a pass. I haven't felt a need to watch more than that first episode. I think if you watched it, Thrasher, you'd just get pissed off. Because mm. um, you're a lot more familiar with the books than I am. It's been so long since I've read them. Um, Alright, what's, uh, what's something you've been watching? Oh, so I finally saw Get Out. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. How is it? Does it live up to the hype? It's uh... it does. It's really good. It's in course, arena, written and directed by Jordan Peele. Um, it was it, and the run up to the release of this film, it was heavily compared to the Stepford Wives. Now, having seen it, I don't think that's a fair comparison. Hmm. The, the only real comparison is that they're both stories of paranoid horror in suburbia, but beyond that, it is a very different kind of story. Um, Would you say this is as much of like a horror film as it was marketed, or is it more of like a thriller? Um, I, it probably is more, now that I think about it, it is more sort of thriller than horror. Um, and, and any horror is kind of, it's more like a creeping dread that you get in the third act. Um, but, and, and there's a lot to chew over in this film. Uh, one thing that I do like is that there are, there are a couple of things that have clearly deliberately been left open to interpretation, which I think only make this movie better. 
But you know, oh. I mean, for people who don't know, it's about this uh, <clears throat> this African American photographer. Uh, he's dating this white woman, and there's going to be some sort of get together uh, at her uh, at her parents' place in the country. So he goes with her to the country, and this will be the first time he's meeting meeting her parents. And when he first meets them, her parents seem really cool, really nice, uh, really accepting. But there's like two black people who live in this community, and their relationship with the family and the, these this these two African American people just it seems like cr- creepy and it just builds from there and we do we do and of course it is eventually really revealed what the true nature of what's going on is and it is it is appropriately horrific with with some wonderful social commentary yeah i've uh, i've really wanted to to see it and i know it's been available to rent i just need to get off my butt and uh, and check it out it's definitely worth checking out yeah, I am cool. looking. I am looking forward to seeing whatever Jordan Peele does next. I guess another thing I've seen that I want to talk about really quickly mm-hmm. is um, on Netflix they premiered a uh, a mini or sort of a, a second season, if you will, of a series that's a wet hot American summer ten years later. Oh yeah, which uh, just came out and um, it's good. I think one thing that's sort of strange is some of the old cast members aren't in the new one, but the way they explain it is pretty funny. Um, and uh, one thing I think it does better than, uh, what was the other series called? Was it like 10 years before? Uh, or... no, it was called, it was like First Day at Camp, I think. First, yeah, that's it. First Day at Camp. First Day at Camp had a whole lot of subplots involving the campers, um, which were sort of spoofs of, um... A lot of different kinds of movies, but yeah, a lot, like, like a lot meatballs, of the characters were given yeah. origin stories. Right, and... You know, sort of like love stories between the younger campers, and this uh, the new one is almost all focused on the old cast, with the exception of one subplot going on about who's going to be the uh, the guy in charge of the um, you know who's the hot new cool kid in camp. Sort of has a running gag with Paul Rudd going on, um, but it's it's very good. It's very funny. It's absurd. It's um. They feature a lot more of the, um, oh, what is it? H. John Benjamin as the man who's transformed into a can of talking vegetables. Oh, yeah. He gets, he gets, uh, some action scenes. (laughs) So, yeah, it, but if you've seen the series, like, you really need to see the movie and the first day of camp series before watching the new one. Otherwise, you'll lose a lot of the jokes of the references it makes and just the relationships of these characters. And uh, like a lot of these reunion sort of movies, like The Big Chill, characters change over time from what they used to be. And it, it sort of goes into in that a bit. Um, and I, I quite enjoy it. If you like the other ones, you'll like this one. But don't watch it without watching the other series, because uh, otherwise it'll be quite confusing. Uh, anything else you've been watching? Uh, nothing... Well, there's there, there's a movie I didn't finish watching because it was oh uh, what, what's that? So um, while while uh, while while hanging out with my wife the other day, she put on uh, a horror movie called uh, Ascent into Hell. We uh, I did not make it half. We turned it off. I did not make it halfway through. It's ostensibly a horror movie. It was so bland and so boring and so full of flat expositional dialogue. I really question why the movie existed. 
Like the best thing I can say about it is all the shots were in focus. Well, what more do you need? Oh, yeah. Now I did okay. find out um, that while I was taking care, while I was out running an errand, some errands, my wife did finish watching it. It doesn't get better. Okay, so it sounds like you made a good call there. Yeah, I, I can't recommend, recommend that. One. that. And I don't normally do that. It's very rare that I even a even a terrible movie. I tend to stick with things until the end. This was the rare exception. Hmm. Well, there you go. Um, all right. So next time on Sequel Cast Two, we'll be looking at episodes five and six of the BBC series Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, followed by the. Um, movie, the big budget movie from 2005, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me at Internet Mayor. Uh, if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 on Stitcher. Uh, listen to it streaming at Stitcher.com. Uh, website, SequelCast2.Podbean.com. And uh, look at our Facebook page. Uh, just look SequelCast 2 on Facebook. So for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying What we demand are rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. Solitary solenoid, terminally paranoid Marvin. Nothing left to be enjoyed, every diode rheumatoid Marvin. Outer alloy in a void Marvin. Happiness has been destroyed. Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for SequelCast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.